You know, we get into certain traditions in uh, things in our life, like how many of you have a favorite Christmas ornament that you put on the, same, the tree in the same place every year? Many of you. Uh, and it's because they mean different things to us. And uh, there are times when the aspect of worship and, and worshiping the Lord and the singing sets us up so that we can receive the word. It kind of softens the ground. Today is one of those days as we get into Revelation chapter 4, it's exactly the opposite. I believe that the word of the Lord today is going to set us up for a great worship service at the end of the message. I believe that you cannot start talking about the throne room of God and the presence of God and the elders laying before the Lord without having something, if you have a relationship with God at all, burst in your spirit that will lead us to an intensity in worship at the end of the service that would be different than if we just worshiped because we always do at the first part. Now, this is going to really mess with the minds of those of you who are online that like to scroll through the worship just to get to the message, or for those that are coming in late today, they're going to walk in and go, what have I missed? And it's going to mess with them. But uh, I'm going to ask if you would take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 4 today. This is the 10th in a series that we started uh, a number of weeks ago as we've gone through the book of Revelation together. And the title of this message is, is First Impressions of Heaven. First Impressions of Heaven. When we started this series, we recognized that Revelation is the only book that specifically promises a blessing to those who read it aloud, to those who hear it being read aloud, and to those who keep it. And we recognize that all of the books of Scripture intently or inherently carry the promise of blessing, but Revelation is the only book that explicitly states it. So we're going to have an opportunity to continue in Revelation to prove to ourselves the validity of this blessing that occurs within our life as we open this text. I also think that we need time to understand, and as we have gone through these past several weeks where we've looked at the specific letters that Jesus was asking John to write to the seven churches, and we really looked closely at each of those, that one of the things that's important for us as we study Revelation is that there is an aspect that we cannot take it out of the context of the first century to which it was written. And the reason I say that is because we're going to be getting into some things now as we go in, in, into chapter 4 and beyond that there's some symbolism to it that, uh, as I said at the beginning, sometimes the details are difficult, but the message is unmistakable. But part of this for us is understanding that I believe that Revelation was a book that was written that if it were to be intercepted by anyone that was wanting to attack the church, and we know that the churches were living under tremendous persecution at that time, that they would read it and wouldn't have the foggiest idea of what they were reading. If they had no relationship with the Lord and they had no understanding whatsoever of, of Jesus and the church, that they would read this and it wouldn't mean anything. So it wouldn't endanger the church any farther. The interesting thing for us in this setting that we live is that there are a lot of Christians that read Revelation and we don't have the foggiest idea of, of what is being said there. And so today what I would like to do is I want to read chapter 4 to you and I want you just to close your eyes, if you would, and just listen 
to the imagery, and then we're going to go through this. But let me just read this as you close your eyes and almost in a prayerful vision ask God to reveal this to you. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. And the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Oh God, we now pray that this image of the throne room of heaven might permeate our thoughts as we begin to dig into this. I ask, oh God, that you would activate through the help of the Holy Spirit our imaginations so that we might be able to try to put into pictures the things that are being described for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As we approach this fourth chapter, we are beginning to look at the second vision of the book. And this vision extends all the way through chapter 16. The first vision was the vision of the Lord speaking to the seven churches. And we remember it from chapter 1 when in John's vision he saw Jesus walking among the seven lampstands representing the seven churches to whom those letters were written indicating that Jesus, Holy Spirit, was at work living and working among the churches as they were ministering at that time. Now the vision begins to change and this vision of what Jesus was doing on earth now changes and through this next vision we're going to see Jesus not standing in the midst of his church but John is being invited up into the heavenly realm into the very throne room of God and he is going to begin to describe to us what he sees as he is caught up into heaven. And so the scene changes from Jesus at work among the churches to now John beginning to take a look at what happens in heaven. And the first thing that we begin to notice about this is the impact of the opening scene. So 
For those of you that like to study films or enjoy music, how many of you have seen Elf this week? You know, just, I, I saw it on several times. I watched it with my grandkids this week. You know, there are different things in, that filmmakers do to set up a scene so that you, you know what's going to be happening. And so as an example, now I recognize that not all of you are going to get this, but if you don't, you need to. You're going to have to figure this out. My favorite movie series of all times is Star Wars. So, okay, I'm glad I have some friends here. Because I was talking about this with a group of people and discovered that none of them were even born in 1977 when this started. So discouraging to me. So I saw the opening movie like maybe 10 times. It's, it, I've seen that movie more than any other. And for those of you that are Star Wars fans, you can picture this with me. There's a scene of stars. It's darkness. And then come words that scroll. You picturing it with me? Your imagination's coming alive this morning? If not, God help you. <laughs> because you're going to need your imagination today. And the camera pans down as, as, as the words scroll through and, and in about four paragraphs gives you a, a sense of what the whole thing is going to all be about. And then as the words disappear into space, there's one tiny spaceship that goes Meow, whipping by. You with me? And as it whips by, suddenly you see shoom, 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 little laser shots aimed at it. And it's dodging back and forth. And you begin to realize, I have stepped into a war scene. But you have no idea what's shooting at it. Until suddenly the triangle tip of an enormous spaceship begins to come in. And you're staring underneath it as it just keeps coming by. And, and in the theater, it was pulsing with the power of the engines. Now, I'm going to get to the Bible sooner or later, believe me. Just, just hang with me in this. And as the front tip of this enormous spacecraft begins to appear, you recognize instantly that it is shooting at this little dinky spacecraft that's dodging around throughout the stars. And so not only in this opening scene does it capture the viewer's interest and imagination, it also powerfully communicates one of the key themes of the movie. The frightening reality is that there is a colossal evil empire that is trying to wipe out a very small rebellion. And this little ship looks like a horsefly trying to fight a horse. Now this morning, I would like you to take that same opening thought of how this all sets up and apply it biblically, because we will discover that God has even more powerful and more important opening scene for us to consider. So now as you take your Bibles and you look at Revelation with me, we're going to take a look at the passage verse by verse. The thing I want you to see is it sticks with, we behold a throne, Dr. George Wood likens this chapter to having been ushered into the White House in World War II when Franklin D. Roosevelt used to go to map rooms that he had in the White House and it was the command center where the war was being played out by his top generals there. And there were two different maps that were up there. One of the maps would be a map of the world that was laid out and the little pins on it in different colors represented exactly where his troops were and other pins indicated exactly where the enemy's troops were. He had pins for where his troops and ships and tanks and he knew all of this by looking at the wall of exactly what was happening at there. But there was another map that was down there. It was a different map. 
And it wasn't the descriptive symbolism of what was happening, but this one was a determinative symbolism where the generals had the opportunity to freely move things around to the way they wanted it to be. And so as he walked down to see the determinative symbolism map before D-Day, he saw exactly what the generals had planned before it ever took place. He said, if things go according to plan, this is what it's going to look like. And so he got to see these two maps. As we open this chapter of Revelation, we find ourselves in the throne room. It is the map room of heaven, and it is filled with determinative symbolism of what is going to happen that should make the church rejoice. Because we see things around us as they are here, but we're going to get a view from the other side that is going to give us a reason at the end of this service to celebrate and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because the Lord has already entered a judgment. He has already determined the end of history, and he's going to have certain consequences that are going to be uh, poured out upon different. And so we look and we see what is being done from God's point of view and not from the earthly point of view. And the church is to take comfort from how God has determined things are going to happen. We look at verse 1. Welcome to the throne. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door open in heaven. And the voice that I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. There's a couple of key phrases. In fact, there's a phrase that's used twice in this first verse, which gives us an indication that what he is about to see has not yet happened on earth yet, but it's about to. After this, now the first after this, is one of the indications that many theologians believe that the church has now been raptured. We've just dealt with the first three chapters that were talking about the letters to the churches. And so now that church age is over, that vision is done. And so it says, after this, and as John is being transported into heaven, many believe that it's a symbolism that the church is raptured and we enter into heaven before the tribulation begins. I assure you that before this series is over with, I'm going to spend an entire message on why I believe the preponderance of Scripture evidence indicates that the church will be raptured before the tribulation but this is one of those indications here after this I looked and there was a voice of one who had a trumpet now if you'll remember back to chapter one when Jesus spoke John's description of his voice was it was like a trumpet and so he said it was the same voice that I heard in chapter one of the vision of what was going on in the churches that I now hear that's in heaven in Revelation 1.19, he says, Write these things which you have seen, those that are and those that are about to take place after this. And so Revelation chapter 4 tells us what is coming after this. And so we then begin to see this visionary door. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things that when I get to heaven, I want God to play me on his Blu-ray or DVD. I'm not sure what he's got up there, but it's going to be good. I would love to have a picture of what John's face looked like as he enters into a place that words are incapable of describing what he sees. Have any of you ever tried to describe something to somebody that they had no concept in order to try to even receive it? I believe that this is what's going on with John. And we go into verse 2 and he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me 
was a throne in heaven. And here are the most comforting words for the church that you can ever hear. And someone sitting on it. How many times in our lives have we said, God is still on the throne. And we say it almost as if there's been a major battle taking place and boy, it was back and forth for a while and we didn't know if God was going to be able to hang on or if he's going to be able to be overcome by all of this, but he is still on the... I think that that underestimates the authority and the power of a majestic God who the first thing that John sees when he gets there is, I see the throne and there's someone on it and his name is God and he's in control. He's never been threatened and there's no evil that can pull him off of that throne. The throne is not empty. There is one that is there. And it's not an overstatement to say that not only does this image of the throne dominate the chapter, but it also dominates the entire book from this point forward in Revelation. In fact, the word throne is used 62 times in the New Testament. 47 of them are in Revelation. So John describes the one on the throne in very unusual terms. He sits there and he's, there is a throne and I recognize that there's one on it and then becomes this marvelous description of somebody who doesn't even know what to say as he begins to describe. Now we tend to think of God in human terms and so if it was us looking at the throne, we are looking for physical characteristics that we can identify with. Is there a head and shoulders, a body, feet, you know, anything that we could associate with? But John sees this and recognizes that it is true what it says in John 4, 24. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we are also commanded in the second commandment that we are not to make any graven image of God because the personality of God is so vast and so great and so complex that it cannot be contained in any image that we would ever make. It cannot be captured in canvas. And John proves to us that God cannot even be captured by our imagination. And so what we have here is one seated on the throne. And so John sees him, and the first thing that explodes to his vision is colors. That's all he can see is colors. And so he begins to liken the colors to things which his readers would be able to have an understanding of. And he he talks about them in terms of stones. We see in 1 Timothy 6.16 that it says God dwells in unapproachable light. I believe that this is what John is trying to describe. In fact, he says the colors are unimaginable. But if I were to try to put into context what it looks like, the first one is jasper, for example. He says, I see jasper. Now, an interesting thing that we need to understand is that our jasper today and their jasper then are different stones. In fact, the likelihood is is what they described as jasper, we would describe as a diamond today. So the first thing that John sees is from this being, there is an explosion of light by which from within him comes a prism of every color imaginable. It's an explosion of light that can only be described as the clearest of diamonds, translucent through which everything could be seen. And what explodes through this is colors that are reflecting his purity and the radiance of God. 
He goes on from there to describe a, a Cornelian or a Sardis stone, and that would be a blood-red stone which represents the justice or the judgment or the wrath of God. And about the throne, in terms of a rainbow arching all around it, he describes an emerald sight, uh, uh, as if light is flowing through an emerald, and he describes it circling, this, this rainbow circling the throne. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a rainbow from an airplane, but if you have, you'll notice that rainbows are full circles. We only see half of them when we're on earth, but when you have a perspective that's a little bit higher, you'll notice that they are full circles. And so here John is looking and he says, there is an emerald rainbow that literally circles completely around the throne of God from this explosion of light that takes place as what he describes himself out. And so the essence of God is seen through John's description and, he's, and it's in terms of his purity and his holiness and his radiance as well as his wrath and his judgment. And yet... The green rainbow always indicates mercy. The throne is circled by the symbol of the mercy of God. I was listening to a song this week by Chris Tomlin. Probably all of you know it. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And it goes on to use these words. He wraps himself in light. And I begin to weep as I begin to think of this in terms of this chapter. That what John sees as he gets into the spirit and gets into the throne room, he sees God wrapped in light. That's the only description he has is this extreme brilliance, burst of color that represents all of the nature of God. And as he wraps himself in light, darkness tries to hide. And it cowers and it trembles at his voice. Trembles at his voice. How great is our God. So John is saying, the one who sits on the throne is vaster than we can describe. He's unapproachable. He's indescribable. He's bigger than any concept we have ever had. But even though the throne dominates, there's more to this scene as we get into verse 4. He said, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures... And they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. So John begins now to introduce us to the worshipers that are around the throne. He sees the throne and the one on it. Now here comes the worshipers. And we're introduced, first of all, to 24 elders who are seated in thrones. They have their own thrones and encircle the throne of God himself. And we ask ourselves the question, who are these elders? Who are these individuals? Because evidently they are ruling beings of some sort because they all have thrones. They've all been dressed in white and they all have crowns. 
And there's a great deal of debate that we could spend all morning talking about all the different possibilities of who these individuals are. I believe the best explanation is that they represent the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New. And the reason I say that is because these are individuals that crowns have been earned. We know that crown is a reward, and so it's obviously something that has been earned that they have been giving that later they're going to demonstrate how to use them in worship. But it would make sense that this would represent the totality of all of the redeemed in the Old Covenant and in the New. Now, there are others that believe that these are angelic beings, that ruling angels, and there is some compelling evidence why that may be, and I'm not here to argue one way or the other. I just want you to know that surrounding the throne, there's 24 thrones and elders that are upon those thrones. And John is not only overwhelmed with the sight of what he sees and the indescribable colors that are emanating from on the throne, but he begins to describe not only is it a sight, but it's a sound, And he describes the sound this way. There's lightning coming out of this. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been really, really close to lightning, it's almost blinding. When it strikes and it's right nearby, the first thing we do is take cover because we know that what follows lightning when you're right near it is a blast of thunder that will shake everything around you. And so this is what John sees. Colors are emanating from from the one on the throne and lightning is flashing out from it and the sound of the thunder had, had, had to be more than anything that he had ever heard before. And he says, what we see in this is the Holy Spirit represented by seven torches which light the way, aim the path toward the one who's sitting on the throne. He illuminates the path to God. And so we see in this description a throne, the one seated on the throne, described in dazzling colors, emerald rainbow around the throne indicating his mercy. We see 24 elders encircling the throne, constantly worshiping the one who's on it. We see lightning and we hear thunder and we see the seven torches representing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then John begins to back away and give a little bit larger of a view. And he added that in all directions, all he could see would what he would describe as a sea of crystal glass, no waves on it, perfectly still. And it indicates to us that it stands there to reflect everything that's happening upon it. For those of you that may have seen firework shows around a calm lake and you see the the flames, uh, you know, as they go up and explode in the air, you see it reflected on the water. So great is the glory of God that it has to be reflected from a crystal sea that surrounds the throne. The scene must have been incredible as it reflects in this shining glass sea all around. But what I believe that it's meant to convey to us is that John clearly saw that it was utterly impossible to venture across this sea of glass. In addition to the lightning and the thunder that would scare us away from the throne of God, a shining sea prevented all approaches. There's no way that a person can get there, no way a person can walk there. So the first impression that we get in chapter 4 of Revelation of God and his power is that his holiness is unapproachable, absolutely unapproachable. And then I will admit the vision gets a little bizarre here. There's some creatures that are described here. They're called four living creatures. And they are seen with these general characteristics. Number one, they they are full of eyes on the outside, which indicates to me that I believe that what happens is that nothing escapes their view. 
They never take their eyes off the one who's on the throne, yet nothing escapes their view that's going on all around them of the 24 elders who are worshiping. Nothing escapes their view that's happening on earth or in the heavens or in the universe. Nothing escapes their view. Everything is seen by these four creatures. It says that they have six wings. Perhaps they are suspended around the throne. And the specific characteristics that are given is the first one has the head of a lion, which we understand today the lion is the king of the wild beasts, the king of the forest. The second one that's described is an ox, which at the time of the writing of this into the first century church, they would have known that the ox is the king of all the domesticated beasts. It was the one that worked the hardest and and would have been... uh, representing patience and continuous labor and strength, just as the lion would have represented strength and majesty. And then the third had the face of a man, which represents the highest order of God's creation on earth. Because man represents intelligence and rational power. It also, man also represents out of all of these, the eternal aspect because man was created with a soul that never dies. And the fourth was an eagle, which is the highest of the bird kingdom. It spoke of the swiftness, which they had, the lofty view of everything. And so represented within this living creature, with these four faces and the wings, as they said there, was the entire created order of God, all of it in its totality, worshiping around the throne. So God has chosen in his throne room to create what would represent back to him the qualities of his own nature and his own personality represented in his creation. And then we look and we see the worship before the throne as we conclude with the end of verse 8. It says, day and night they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders had a response when these creatures cried out. The 24 elders fell down on their face before God. These ruling angels or this representation of all humanity under the old covenant and the new, their response was to fall on their face before the throne and they praised him unceasingly and they laid their crowns before the throne and they say you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being what else could these heavenly attendants do but worship there are days in our lives where it's difficult for us to worship But I want you to know that it will be easy when we are in heaven to worship. It will be the language of our soul, the description that we have of of the presence of the Lord. And I wish that we could set up the sanctuary in such a way that we could worship God the way that the 24 elders did. That we could move the chairs apart so that when we worship, we could lay on our face before God, prostrate before him saying, Oh Lord, I am so unworthy to even be in your presence. All I can do is fall face first before you to declare your majesty and your graciousness and your mercy that's been poured out because I don't deserve it and all I can do is worship do you see now why this has to be the opening scene of heaven for us 
You remember the seven churches? Specifically remember what Jesus said to Pergamum. He said, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Do you remember that? He goes, I know the difficulty of your life right now. I know the difficulty of your soul wanting to cry out praise unto me, yet the circumstances of your life are encumbered because you are in an oppressive, spiritually oppressive place. But I want you to know that after this, you are going to be transported to a new throne room and old things are passed away and behold, all things are going to become new. Just as we were recreated in our experience with coming to know God, there's going to be a new creation that takes place when we leave this throne room of Satan and enter into the throne room of the Most High God. He says, I know where you dwell. I know the troubles you're going through. Church, I know all of this. But after this, Jesus is coming soon. After your grief... After your sickness, after the difficulty of human relationships, after the struggle that we have to live triumphantly for the Lord in the throne room of Satan, after this, after this is the throne room of God. Knowing this, what does God give John? What does he give to them in terms of an opening scene of this? He shows them the incomparable throne, an unrivaled throne, a glorious throne, and the one that sits on that throne is above every other throne. Why? Because the one who sits on this throne is holy, 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 holy is the Lamb of God who sits on the throne because he is almighty, not partially mighty, he's almighty. And because he was, and he is, and he is to come, because he's the one that has created all things. Worship team, would you please come and prepare to lead this congregation in worship because we are about to enter into the throne room of God in our spirits. There comes a moment in time when the word has set us up where the words of a song don't just become words of a song. They become words that help us describe something in our own nature. And the, the lyrics help us as we begin to talk about the power of the living God. But let me tell you, what an opening scene God gave us in the fourth chapter.